Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we're joined by Spencer McIntyre, a seabird ecologist and little penguin advocate. He's also from my motherland, New Zealand. So kia ora, my brother. Thank you for coming on the show and welcome to the Conservation Tribe. Kia ora. Glad to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, so today's episode, we've got to have a little bit of a focus on little penguins but we'll also touch on you work with other animals as well so we'll have a chat about that um but first can you please introduce yourself to the podcast kia ora i'm spencer mcintyre i'm a phd candidate at te otamaki makoro the university of auckland right here in beautiful new zealand uh, i originally was a researcher at the san antonio zoo in texas and then did some work at trinity college dublin in ireland and just moved down here in the last year to start working with seabirds and particularly the korora, the little blue penguins. Uh, I particularly focus on interactions of human development and ecosystem function and how we can control human development so that it doesn't negatively impact the ecosystem as significantly. Uh, right now, I'm looking at the health of seabirds in the Horeki Gulf and how that might be impacted by Auckland. We're looking at kind of the scale of as we get further away from the city, is the health of these birds improving? And particularly, are less mobile species, like the korora, are they more impacted by the city than something that can range more widely? Like the oid gray-faced petrel flies hundreds and hundreds of kilometers every day. Are they going to be less impacted by cities and those local impacts than something that's a bit more geographically restricted, like the penguins? Interesting. Um, what inspired you to get into the space and work as a you know, seabird ecologist scientist? Yeah, so on one level, it's, you know, an opportunity to work here uh, on some really charismatic species at a top university. Yeah, that was, you know, one base level to it. But uh, more just inherent to me was I grew up on an island back home in Texas. Uh, so I was out on the water every single day interacting with the wildlife, seeing these sorts of habitats. Obviously not as gorgeous as the Horaki Gulf, but <laughs> still the same kind of thing uh, out on the water every day. And that inspired me to get involved with the environment and particularly birds just everywhere out on the water you're seeing birds flying all around mm -hmm. and this project as much as it might seem separate from my past research of looking at amphibians in texas and then plants in ireland it's actually using some of the same models so it's building on this past research of using biotic indicators using birds plants or amphibians as indicators of the health of the ecosystem so we're using these same models from past research I've worked on to extend into the Horaki Gulf and seabirds in particular. Can you talk a wee bit about what those similarities are? Essentially, animals range over a wider area than plants. Obviously, plants don't move. Animals do. And particularly, seabirds are extremely wide-ranging. So we use them as indicators of the health of the ecosystem. They go out. They eat food, go all the way around the Horaki Gulf, pick up that food, bring it into their body, bring it back up onto the islands where they poo or they feed their chicks. 
and basically consolidate the nutrients of the entire marine ecosystem into a smaller area so that we can assess it just in this one point rather than having really extensive transects of going up and down the Horaki Gulf doing like plankton drags or trying to catch fish, measure biotic density at sea, which is a very difficult task, very expensive, time consuming. Whereas with these seabirds, we can just pick up a bird, measure its health, look at the reproductive success throughout the year and get a much better indicator of how the ecosystem is functioning with much less effort and with probably a greater degree of accuracy. And um, what species do you work with at the moment? Do you work with some more than, than others? Yeah. Um, so over the last year, we focused on the Korara, the little blue penguin. And I was, I was assisting on one of my colleagues, Carrie Lukey's master's thesis, while we were getting my PhD thesis set up. My thesis will be focusing on the Korara, little blue penguin, the Kuaka diving petrel, and the Oi grey-faced petrel. And we selected those three species because they range across a very varied scale. So the Korara are extremely immobile for a seabird, only going about 15 to 20 kilometers a day, whereas the Oi will go two, three, four hundred kilometers a day. And the Kwaka kind of in the middle there as our middle range sort of species. Uh, we also work with another a wide range of other seabirds around the Gulf. There are 21 species of seabirds that breed in the Gulf. And I'll sort of tag along for other projects as we go, like I've worked with Rocco Buller shearwaters that breed up in the Poor Knights Islands, as well as Takapu Australasian gannets at a few different spots across the Gulf. Fluttering shearwaters, uh, flesh fluid shearwaters, uh, just basically any seabird in the Gulf, I kind of get thrown in on that project, mm -hmm. even if it isn't my study focus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the little penguin, can you give the little pen penguin a wee bit of a, an intro? Um, what are, what is the little penguin? Where do they live? How many species are there? And what do they do? So little penguins, as you might guess from their name, they're little. They're the <laughs> smallest penguins, uh, only growing to about 30 to 35 centimeters tall and about one kilo of mass. Uh, and from their other name, blue penguin, they're blue. They're the only penguins that aren't that black and white tuxedo look. These went for a more <laughs> suave blue tuxedo look to them. Uh, and then also in Australia, I believe you call them fairy penguins there as well. Yeah, and that's penguins. also a bit, yeah, that's also a bit indicative of them. They're nocturnal on land. They only come ashore at night. In Australia, quite popularly, they do these big penguin parades of dozens or hundreds of penguins coming ashore all at once. It doesn't really happen here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And that is one of our indicators that there's actually two species of them, not just the one that was originally thought. So way back. 1800s or so they thought there were like six different species you know naturalists were just going out and saying oh i saw one with a little bit more white on their wing that must mean it's a different species no not really that's not how it works um but after that once we got more of a scientific consensus to it it was more or less thought that the australian and the new zealand birds were the same species very recent evidence says that's not and so we have that from genetic evidence from their behavior of all coming ashore at once, rather than from being a bit more individualistic, as well as the Australian penguins breeding twice in a year. So for the long time, that was debated whether that was because they had better environmental conditions or whether it was genetic. We have now more or less proven that it is a genetic thing, that the, the New Zealand ones will not breed twice, period. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Australian ones, you know, the ones in good condition will breed twice, but uh, 
and some of them will just breed the ones, but they're capable of it. The mm-hmm. ones from New Zealand are not capable of doing that second, or at least it hasn't been documented. Um, because they for so long were considered to be the one species, they haven't been studied very intensively. So we can't say definitively they aren't capable of it, but we have no indications they are capable of it. Mm-hmm. And then the genetic studies saying, yeah, they're different species. Uh, we have all these different points, the behavior, the reproduction, and the genetics to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is the little penguin. They're small, they come ashore at night, and they are debatably in both Australia and New Zealand, depending on how you count the species. Mm -hmm. Okay, but if if you go by the consensus within the scientific community, you would have the two different species, and one being located in New Zealand and the other in Australia. Slightly more complex than that as well. Okay, okay. We have another twist. Uh, part of the reason that they thought that uh, the New Zealand ones in good condition could breed twice is because in Otago, they do that twice. However, that is because we have the Australian penguins in Otago. So <laughs> it's a little, uh, it's a bit of a misnomer to call them Australian. Uh, maybe it would be better to call them fairy penguins, something like that. I'll call them fairy penguins and Kororo so that we can okay. split apart the what two differences. Are. Okay. And, yeah. and the range, what, so the range of the fairy penguin kind of they come to Otago at the bottom of New Zealand. What are the ranges of the two different species? Let's call them two different species. Yeah, so the Korora are all the way around Otero, New Zealand, including the Chatham Islands. Uh, the Australian penguins, the fairy penguins, they are southern Australia as well as Tasmania and just Otago. Mm-hmm. Nowhere else in Otero, New Zealand, just there in Otago. And the thought there is there was a local extinction of the New Zealand species, and they got replaced by the Australian ones that migrated in. Not really sure how they do that. That's quite the journey for those tiny little birds to make. Mm -hmm. But that is the current hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So the fairy penguins, which live in Otago, they kind of, they stay there. They don't kind of migrate from the Australian mainland to Otago. They kind of just stay there. Yeah, it seemed like it was a population colonized, essentially, Otago. And because they were a bit bigger, a bit tougher, uh, it's thought that they could more or less fight off advances from the other penguins. But this is all kind of conjecture because it is just recent findings that they are truly different. Uh, But the thought was local extinction. So there's no little penguins whatsoever in Otago. And then the Australian ones make a big migration, come down and colonize Otago. Uh, oh, God, I'm blanking on the question. <laughs> um, Nothing answers the question. But, but yeah, uh, there isn't like a migration between them. They don't generally go long distances between seasons. It seemed to more or less be a one-off colonization of them coming from Australia down to Otago. Mm-hmm. Is there any idea when that happened? The species split appears to have been about a 1,000 years ago. Um, so the current thought is soon after Moto arrived in Otago, the little penguins, the local little penguins were driven to extinction, and then uh, it got recolonized by the Australian penguins soon afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's the hypothesis, but it still needs to be investigated much further before we can make any broad claims about this is definitively what happened. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that the, you know, the general consensus within the scientific community is that there are two different species based... Um, on the genetic differences and some behavioral differences. Um, but when you look at certain, you know, for me, when I was researching the IUCN 
um, they class it as just the one and there are other organizations which just class them as the one species. So why is that the case when there is a scientific consensus yet that kind of uh, isn't re represented in that way on, you know, kind of well-known organizations? I think it's something that people are going to be slow to act on, uh, yeah. especially the species has been divided and recombined and divided and recombined so many times through its history. Uh, there's also some organizations that still stand by the white flippered penguin, which is basically just a local morph to around Canterbury. Uh, that's not supported as being its own species, but some organizations still took that up. Uh, I think to an extent, some organizations will base off of they see a subspecies and assume it to be a full species, not clarifying the difference between the two. Scientific organizations like the IUCN, I think it's because they want to be a bit slow and sure to act rather than split something based on a couple papers. Because as I'm saying, it's based on, I believe, four papers that truly spoke to the difference between the species. Mm -hmm. Four that all confirm they are separate species, but that's still quite a small thing and quite recent. Uh, the International Penguin Conference that was down in Dunedin last week did discuss this and pretty much backed it up. These are two separate species. So I think having a major conference like that pretty much come out and say with one voice, these are two species, mm -hmm. uh, that might be something that would push the next IUCN assessment to consider them as two different species. Mm -hmm. uh, same going for Australia and New Zealand as a whole, being able to divide them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so on their website, the IUCN website, they class the little penguin as uh, least concerned. Um, is that a fair representation uh, for the Australian fairy species and the little penguin species in New Zealand? I love the way you phrased that because it is two very different questions. Uh, for the fairy penguins, yeah, I think it's a fair assessment. Um, least concerned, there's an estimated half million of them, uh, which is well above the categories to begin being considered endangered and i believe they list them as stable as well which is also fair there are local declines and there are also local increases so on average i think we can say this species is stable maybe they're moving to different regions but as a whole their population is stable very different question to ask about the korora uh, and that is because there are substantially fewer there are sixty thousand estimated across the extent of otero new zealand but that includes those in Otago. So if there was a species split, we would lose those Otago ones to the species. And that is the densest region for them around the country. Oh. So we could well lose half of them, uh, which then puts them at 30,000 for a species across the entire country, which it's getting into endangered territory. Uh, Otero New Zealand already considers them to be an endangered species at the national level, mm -hmm. considering them to be at risk declining. Um, which is kind of the equivalent to an IUCN endangered. They aren't critical and they aren't just threatened. They're kind of in a bad space. They are decreasing and not in great numbers. Mm -hmm. So I would say least concern stable is fair if we consider those presuppositions of them being the same species and considering the decline of an entire country's population to not be significant just because there are so many more in Australia. Mm -hmm. So if they do class them as two different species, effectively that population in New Zealand halves. So you have, you mentioned there was say 30,000 odd or so in, in Otago alone of the fairy penguins. 
uh, that's based on an estimate. We don't have a ton of data on it because okay. most of the little penguin research is done in Australia and particularly in Phillip Island. Of the 200 or so papers ever published on them, I believe 190 of them were in Australia mm -hmm. and probably 150 of those were just on Phillip Island. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we know about them is based on very geographically specific information. Um, so the Korora, uh, as in the New Zealand species, it wouldn't be halved so much as we go from a half million to 60,000. And then once we cut away those fairy penguins, then it's just 30,000. Mm -hmm. uh, again, an estimate, it could be higher, it could be lower, but it's definitely a significantly lower number than we're currently working off of. Yeah. And they don't have that support from being considered the same species as Australia mm -hmm. with a half million birds over there boosting the global population. Mm -hmm. And that's a very significant difference, half a mil compared to potentially 30,000. Yeah. Um, so the Kuroda uh, population, is that, you mentioned that's trending downwards. Yes. Again, very difficult to assess because we don't have a ton of research done on them. And a lot of the research that is done is done in Otago because they're more dense there. And the fairy penguins are much easier to work with being highly social and very dense in populations. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very difficult to assess, but indications are they are declining. Uh, we've had a few mass crashings of birds, primarily juveniles. So we'll lose entire breeding groups, uh, just lose every chick from a year. Those sorts of things have been happening increasingly, as well as there are plenty of local declines and losing habitat all around the country, as well as losing space to invasive species and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, so that is actually one of the main research focuses for the New Zealand penguin group that's just formed up. Uh, I believe it's Thomas Martin and Carrie Jane Wilson down in South Island that are leading this. Um, and hopefully they're going to class the little penguins as two separate things when they're doing these assessments. But that's one of their focuses. Mm -hmm. Identify where all the colonies are and identify whether they are increasing or decreasing. And mm -hmm. they're still in those early stages of identifying all the colonies. Mm -hmm. um, like there are some that people are just aware of like, oh yeah, there happen to be penguins by my flat and that wasn't ever written down anywhere. So we're still in that stage of knowing where they are before we can start getting to is the national population declining. Yeah, I guess that's a um, pretty reasonable first step. Um, what are the major threats to the, the Korora? So number one is dogs, uh, people that walk their dog without a leash on a penguin breeding beach. That is the number one threat to them. Uh, and frankly, it's one that we can resolve very easily. Walk your dog on a leash. Uh, that is a very simple solution to their primary threat. And that was based off two studies down in South Island, one done by the West Coast Penguin Group and one by the University of Otago. Both of them independently found dogs walking off the leash to be the number one threat to penguins. That is based on um, a bit of bias on where you find the bodies because they're not going to find the body of a penguin that starved at sea or got eaten by a shark or something but they will find one that got attacked by a dog on a beach. So okay. major threat, but we can't necessarily say, you know, one in seven penguins is killed by a dog, which is what those studies showed. Mm -hmm. I believe West Coast, it was 14% of dead penguins was due to a dog and Otago was 13%. Mm -hmm. We would estimate it to be lower based on, as I said, the reporting percentages, but it's still a very significant threat. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as getting hit by cars, a very significant threat. There are some efforts to reduce that, 
like at Uomru has that little underpass with adorable videos of it, of them walking under the road through a little tunnel. Uh, there are those sorts of things, you know, putting up signs wherever penguins cross, you know, drive slowly, have your lights on, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so dogs, cars, and then the ones that we can pretty much apply to every single animal in Otero, New Zealand of having uh, invasive species and habitat loss. Invasive species are so damaging to all of the native wildlife here, and penguins are not immune to it. Uh, having stoats, ferrets, weasels, rats invading their habitat, eating the chicks, eating the eggs, massive threat. And it's more or less pushed Korora off the mainland. You have some isolated pockets. You have uh, the different predator-free areas. Like locally here, we have Tafranui, which is a predator-free park. There, the Korora are breeding fairly well, but that's because it's predator-free. And then you go just outside the predator-free fronts, and you see stoat uh, stoat tracks, rat tracks, all sorts of invasive mammal tracks, and no penguins, coincidentally. And that is more or less the trend that we see around the country. Uh, as well as, you know, people like to have their batch on the beach. Uh, that's just a nice place to go hang out on the weekend. But in doing so, you are destroying penguin habitat. habitat yeah. Yeah. Uh, if the invasive species already have that area, then, you know, the penguins aren't going to be there. But if we make it predator free, we still need to make that habitat good for the penguins again. Getting rid of the predators isn't enough if there's still just houses everywhere and uh, concrete, asphalt everywhere, they don't have anywhere to nest. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're like um, in Wellington over the last few months, we've had lots of penguins popping up in the downtown. Uh, that's exactly what's going on. The penguins are trying to find a place to nest and they end up in a sushi shop or in the train station. Uh, instead of finding, you know, a nice uh, little putakawa to tuck under. Uh, so the loss of habitat, the invasive species, but then the ones that, you know, humans can do a lot about by just being a responsible dog walker mm-hmm. and driving slowly near penguin colonies. Yeah. You mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast um, some of the research that you're doing at the moment with respect to human development and the effect that that has on you know, the ecosystems. And can you can I elaborate on that a little bit more on the yeah, human so, development side? Yeah, we're not going to be looking directly at the human development. Uh, this is, again, still just very early stages. We're currently working on just how is their health in the inner gulf near Auckland and how is it compared to the outer gulf far away from Auckland? So that's the first stage. Are they doing well? Are they doing badly? From there, we can then start looking at those proximate causes. We can look at, is it boat passes that are doing it? Is it noise pollution? Is it light pollution? Is it overfishing? Is it habitat loss? Uh, but these aren't you know, separate questions. They are intersecting questions. Having habitat loss plus invasive species is much worse than just habitat loss or just invasive species. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult to parse apart. Um, is it this one cause, which it almost certainly isn't. It's almost certainly those intersecting causes. Right now, we are just looking at ones close to Auckland. How are they looking? How do they compare to the ones far away from Auckland? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting to just that idea of is there a correlation between, um, you know, and species health and the distance you are from a major city mm-hmm. kind of is is interesting thought in itself. Yeah. And Obviously, it does- it's not that, um, you know, simple, but... It, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. 
Uh, and it does sound like an extremely simple and possibly naive question, but it's something we don't have an answer to. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, having the species mobility aspect to it, comparing the Korra to the Kwaka and the Oi, that allows us to tell, you know, the species just isn't doing well versus it is their lack of mobility that is the issue. Mm-hmm. It is Korra specifically being near the city because Oi probably can succeed near the city if they have bad local conditions. They just fly 400 kilometers away. Penguins don't have that option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see, is it truly the city that's doing it? Or is it something unique to the inner gulf? Is it something unique to the species itself? Fascinating, fascinating. Um, quickly going back to the solution so of threats. Well, so the threats, dogs, um, and a potential solution is just kind of keeping your dog on a leash. Um, cars, they often get hit by cars. So just being cautious and maybe having signs of common, um, little penguin kind of passes or pass-throughs and just being cautious that there could be a little penguin kind of just running out in front of your car. So just being aware of that. And then you have the invasive species. Is there, obviously it affects, um, more native species, but is there any solutions, um, brainstorm to to combat invasive species um the general things that we're doing around the country uh just more pest control more pest control constantly um the pest free islands have been a massive success uh one of the colonies that we weren't even aware of existing up in the heninchecks uh, on uh, motomoka on lady alice island uh no one knew that it existed and then we went up there in october and found a colony of probably 300 birds uh, and that's because it is a pest-free island. So it very quickly you know, went from, you know, there might be a couple penguins to it's potentially the biggest penguin colony in the Horaki Gulf. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is because it is pest-free and they've been given this opportunity to thrive. So getting more regions to be pest-free, whatever the method is of getting it to be pest-free. I know there's some controversies around that, mm-hmm. um, but the pest-free status is what is most significant in getting those habitats back for the penguins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, every person can contribute. I have a rat trap in, in my backyard. Uh, every once in a while, a rat will come across, and that's, you know, a two egg that might have gone saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, just pest control, even if it's as simple as putting out a rat trap around uh, your flat, it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Helpful to those uh, native species that are effective. Yeah. Interesting you mentioned these islands. They kind of can be seen as um, like sanctuaries almost. Um, And we've got a few islands off the coast of New Zealand. So um, that seems like a potential solution is almost converting these small little islands into little sanctuaries. Yeah, uh, it's now over 100 that are pest-free. So it's it's a fantastic project. And most of them seem to be just dramatic successes. like I just said, Lady Alice Motobuka is an extremely successful one, uh, as well as Tiritiri Matangi, another one of my sites, is just the most stunning place. Uh, huge penguin colony there, as well as having the Kokako breeding so well there, the Takehe breeding really well there. Uh, these pest-free islands are really critical to the conservation mission around the country. Um, but getting them onto the mainland, that's the next step. Uh, we can get all the islands to be pest-free, and that's still less than 5% of the country. We don't want the penguins to be, you know, shunned off to these last 5%. We want them to be able to start establishing on the mainland again. And that's really the next uh, the next great leap forward 
is to introduce them to the mainland. Mm-hmm. And so starting small with like peninsulas, Tafra Nui, just outside of Auckland, being a peninsula, pop up pest-free fence, and suddenly the birds come back. Mm-hmm. And um, this is actually unrelated to the penguins, but just in the last couple of weeks, we had the first ever chick to return to breed at that site after a decade's effort of getting oi gray-faced yeah. petrels to breed. We finally had the first second well generation. I know, so exciting. Uh, it so but it's cool. that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, it's so rare to get such a clear conservation win, and uh, it's awesome to see something like that. Um, but yeah, it's the next step. It's getting the peninsulas, uh, Coromandel, the tip of the Coromandel is looking to go fully predator-free soon. Uh, the Otago Peninsula, anywhere that we can get kind of cut off and make it clearly pest-free, it gives such a new opportunity for these birds to thrive. And you achieve pest-free status, is it mainly just through fencing, like barricading or fencing off these areas? Is that kind of how you achieve that? How, uh, how do you achieve a pest-free status without actually kind of enclosing it off somewhat from other invasive species coming in from the outside? The fencing is an extremely significant part to it. Uh, so you do have like the mainland islands like Mongototuri just outside of Hamilton, where you just, you know, encircle a mountain with a fence and then make it pest free. Tons of traps. Usually it starts with uh, poison baiting, like 1080. I know that is highly controversial, but uh, that is generally the method that happens for the islands or for these mainland island sanctuaries. Um, but you need that fence so they don't just reintroduce themselves. If you don't have the fence, cool, you wiped out all the predators inside this area, but then you have them come right back in. Uh, so the fencing is a very significant part to that. And mm-hmm. Tafra Nui is prime example right outside Auckland that people can just go check out and see, wow, this is extremely different from a place that has predators. Mm-hmm. Um, a prime comparison is looking at Tafra Nui compared to the Hunua Ranges. Uh, similar types of habitats, but one is pest-free and one isn't. And you can really hear it in the bird song. Like you can barely hear your own thoughts with how loud it is with bird song. At really? That is and, so cool. Yeah. Uh, te Teri Matangi, same thing. Just the bellbirds, the tui, yeah, the kukako, everything singing. It is such a difference in an area that has invasive species versus one that doesn't. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned the the poison baiting and that being controversial. Was that controversial within even within the conservation community or is it controversial in terms of the general public? Um, I believe it's more the general public. Uh, the scientific community, I mean, everyone has mixed emotions on it because, you know, no conservationist feels good about killing an animal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the fact to it. No one feels good about that. Um, the scientific consensus seems to be it's not pleasant, but it's necessary. Uh, if we want these native birds to survive, we need to be doing poison baiting. Kiwi would go extinct if we didn't poison bait. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is essentially a fact. That is not even an opinion. Uh, we would lose so many birds if we didn't have these extreme measures. Uh, trapping and predator-free fencing, it's only so effective and is only possible on extremely small scales. It does need something that can just you know, clear an area of invasive species like poison baiting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not an area that I work on extensively, uh, but it does touch onto my topics. And that's the impression I more or less gotten. It's a nasty thing that does have to be done if we want these native species to survive. And a necessary evil, perhaps. Yeah, a necessary evil. Mm. Do you know much about the Kiwis? 
as in the bird? Uh, I've seen a few. I think they're really adorable. Uh, and then one of my colleagues I work with, Isabel Sanchez, uh, she works with Kiwi looking at the genetics of them up in Northland, uh, looking at the different populations of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so not something I know a ton about, but I absolutely love them. They are adorable. Mm. I want to learn more about you know, the Kiwi, obviously being a Kiwi. Um, <laughs> I don't actually know too much about it, ironically. Um, are they looking like i know you don't know probably don't know so much about it but like generally speaking are they doing okay they're struggling um uh, it, a lot of very intense conservation efforts but yeah it, it's a long way to go for kiwi uh and essentially they are limited to predator free areas it's going to be a long long road to get them to truly repopulate every forest around the country or, or even many forests yeah do you know their, what's their general, what's their population estimate? Is there like a... Uh, I'm honestly not too sure yeah, on that. Uh, I mean, there are several different species and I'm sure there's differences. You know, some are doing better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can't speak to that, but they are struggling very much. Ah, such a shame. It is. They're such I've, cool creatures. I've seen a couple of them in real life and they're just the cutest things. Hmm. We had the best night the other day when we were finishing up the penguin work. Same night that we actually got the first ever oi to return. Uh, we saw six kiwi. And this is at Tafarinui, predator-free area. Uh, six kiwi in one night. And it was especially cool if one of our researchers had just moved to the country uh, and had never seen one and suddenly six in a night. That gives you such a skewed view of how many there are. Mm-hmm. I'm just having a look at a couple of those articles that you sent through. Um, there's one here says the wreck of the penguins why did hundreds of dead um, little blue penguins wash up on the beaches can you expand on that yeah so notoriously uh, a couple years ago there was wrecks of thousands of penguins all around Auckland and the Northland and that obviously popped up all around the news people were very aware of it it's Hard to miss that every time you go to the beach, there's, you know, dead penguins washed up everywhere. Uh, it's thought, now looking back on it, that it was primarily uh, the El Nino oscillation, which mm-hmm. is something that will be uh, worsening with climate change. We're going to be having that happen more and more often. Um, and that El Nino essentially washes in a bunch of hot water and uh, um, speeds up the currents and makes it so that the penguins can't find food. It uh, mashes up the water. They are visual hunters, so in this really mashed up, dirty water that's kicked up all the sand and mud from the bottom, uh, they aren't able to find their food. As well as less of their food is actually producing itself. Uh, Hotter waters are, in general, more difficult to produce plankton, uh, and as well to move that productivity up different trophic levels to the larger, uh, larger creatures. So it's thought that El Nino seasonal oscillation was the um, the prime driver of that crash. You know? yeah. But it always is a difficult um, a difficult stage of life for them. That first year after leaving the burrow, and that was what the majority of the penguins were, was juveniles or first year releases. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So those ones always have a hard time, but particularly in difficult conditions. And we fully expect those difficult conditions will become more and more often. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak so much to what's happened in Australia, but uh, anytime there's been heat waves, similar things have happened. 
uh, and particularly with water being so much warmer up there, you would expect it to be a more severe arsenic than here in the Poroki Gulf. Yeah. In terms of what I can do, the general public, um, what are little things that we can do, little changes to our daily habits um, that we can do to to help these little guys? Well, I mean, the big ones that you can do to help everything in the environment, use less plastic, uh, smaller carbon footprint, those sorts of things. But they're the ones quite specific to the penguins. Walk your dog on a leash. It is such a ridiculous threat to have to a species is just dogs off a leash going and killing 50 penguins. That is an absurd, absurd threat to have to a species, especially one that people love as much as penguins. Mm -hmm. um, so that's number one. Use a leash when you're on the beach. Um, if you're in Aotearoa, New Zealand, I don't know if it's as big a thing in Australia, but invasive species trapping, just have a rat trap in your garden. Something like that can be very helpful. It's just one at a time, gradually making it slightly better for those birds to live. Mm -hmm. And there are some ones like um, out in the Waitakere ranges just west of here, there's a community group that has been invasive species trapping uh, very intensively. And they've actually managed to get seabirds to live in that community now. It's just a small little beginnings of a colony, but they've managed to get these birds to come back just by getting the invasive species to leave or removing them from that area. Um, so putting out a rat trap, something as simple as that's helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, nest boxes, that's a much more proactive towards getting the penguins to come back. Uh, the DOC website, Department of Conservation website, has... Uh, instructions for how to build a nest box. Ooh, you can do this thing. Yeah. And that's the really cool one because if they take up in that box, you now have penguins in your garden. Like that's so cool that you've just made a little home for penguins and they might take up in it. And they do. Um, we have some studies showing that they'll take up in these boxes within a couple weeks of you putting it out sometimes. Um, oh. So Department of Conservation website has instructions on how to build one of those. They cost about 40 to $50 to build penguins in there you can decorate it and they have uh like a lid you can lift off and look in uh world can you just like have a penguin in your garden yeah and that's only if you're kind of <laughs> living on the coast i imagine yes uh yes. i mean obviously most people around here being on the coast uh, yeah, yeah. it's not so helpful if you're in like rotorua to yeah. <laughs> stick out a nest box you're not going to get a penguin um but yeah if you live on the coast putting out a nest box it uh. makes like I was talking about earlier, where if the penguins come back once you get rid of the invasive species, but they have nowhere to live, that's what the nest box solves. Mm -hmm. uh, it gives them somewhere to live. It's a lot safer for them, particularly if they're trying to nest in a sandy area, which my understanding is that is much more of a thing in Australia than here. Uh, sandy burrows collapse all the time. It is actually one of the prime drivers of nest failure is just the burrow collapsing. It's not going to be the case unless you really build that box badly. Uh, as well as if you dig it in properly, you know, cover it with dirt, uh, kind of dig it into the ground a bit. It's a lot better for controlling the humidity and the temperature than a natural burrow. You lose that collapse rate uh, as well as, you know, you get to go have a look at a penguin. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. And it's uh, just a cool little project as well. Like I'm sure heaps of people have got on board that, I imagine. It seems like a cool thing to to be involved with. Yeah. Uh, or even if you don't live on the coast, uh, plenty of organizations are looking for people to donate or build the nest boxes. 
uh, like Terry Terry Matangi just had about 40 penguin nest boxes donated by people all decorated with their name and all those sorts of things on it. Mm. And, you know, you just built a home for a little penguin. So even if you don't live on the coast, you can contribute in that way. And Doc has information on how to get that to the people that need it. What's that website again, sir? Uh, Department of Conservation. Uh, God, I don't know the website, but New Zealand Department of Conservation. Yeah, I'm sure if yeah. they check that in Google, they'll, they'll find it there. So they've got instructions on there if you want to build your own. And even if you're not on the coast, kind of how you can get involved in, in some way to, to build a, a nesting box. That's, that's, that's the coolest thing. Yeah, get actively involved in penguin conservation. It's so cool. Hmm. Okay, so those are some ways that we can help. You, you, you touched on the plastic thing as kind of maybe not being so specific to little penguins, but just across the board. It seems to be trending right now. Uh, it's been trending for a little while. What's, have you, is there, have you noticed a big change in New Zealand, um, about people being more proactive about reducing their, their plastic output? Like, is it something that's been noticeably different, say, in the past 12 months or so? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I've only lived here for 12 months, so I oh, can't you've only speak been to here it. for a year. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I can't speak too widely to it, but I do get the impression that worldwide in the last year, probably, there's been a massive shift. Like, even two or three years ago, climate change was something people were aware of, but not like, oh my God, this is something we need to work on plastics it wasn't an oh my god we need to work on this i feel like in the last year it's really accelerated quite a bit how much people are concerned on it possibly that's the bubble i've put myself in but it is the impression i'm getting mm -hmm. uh that people are becoming increasingly aware of their impacts on the environment just by you know their daily life choices mm -hmm. um i wouldn't say that daily life choices are the, the purely the way forward um we do need the broad systemic changes the ones that, you know, just switching from plastic to paper for your shopping bags. That's not the thing that's going to save the environment. It's the government saying, you know, we are not going to accept that you are producing this much plastic as a company and putting it out into the world. Uh, individual choices like that are placing so much pressure on the consumer to, uh, to basically save the environment themselves. And not everyone's able to do that and not everyone's willing to do that. So we do need those broader systemic changes to make it easier for people to make those decisions. Make it less costly on a personal level to move away from plastic, to move away from carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. um, so I believe that is the step forward. But it is yes. one that your own individual choices undoubtedly help with. Yes, yes. So those systemic changes are obviously really important. But how do we, how do they happen? Like these things that we do on a daily basis, um, you know, kind of advocating for um, cruelty-free products or plastic-free alternatives, these create some kind of societal pressure. And that societal pressure, if more and more people get involved, that potentially can um, be used to uh, influence these systematic changes from a government policy perspective. Um, I, I would add to that, though, uh, that's essentially saying vote with your dollar. Uh, however, those with more dollars get to vote more times in that system. Uh, so it does need to be a government action, not just a, um, a personal how, how choice. Do we, dollar. How do we uh, kind of influence that? 
like what what can what's like they just need to kind of figure it out them themselves or how can we kind of pressurize them or influence them in some way to make these necessary policy changes uh lobby your politicians make sure that they're aware that you're concerned with it um mm -hmm. currently wellington is having a really large climate strike as well as having um got him blanking on his name but the lad that's been standing outside of parliament for the last hundred days uh those sorts of actions uh putting pressure to the governments to know that you want less plastics in the ocean you want less carbon in the sky mm -hmm. um putting those sorts of pressures to, to know that we aren't going to accept uh the environment being destroyed in that way mm -hmm. uh our personal choices will contribute to that uh but i believe the personal choices is placing uh, entirely too much pressure on the individual uh, and one person can't save the penguins. We need the entire country to save the penguins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our, uh, our leader at the moment, Jacinda Ardern, how's she going with this kind of stuff? Uh, I'm not super touched into New Zealand politics. Uh, I mean, I've just gone here in the last year. Uh, it's certainly better than... Um, previous. Yeah. Uh, previous, as well as places I'm more familiar with. Um, <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> Um, it's certainly better than that. Um, I, I think there's space to go like, uh, climate emergency still hasn't been declared. Uh, there still hasn't been widespread climate action. Uh, there was, um, that new green plan a few months ago, but it was extremely non-binding. Um, so it needs to be binding plans that are more than just saying, oh, we value the environment. Yeah. We value the environment and we're going to put this dollar value to it and we're going to put this sort of effort into it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. Okay, we're, um, I think I've gone through pretty much the, the majority of the questions. I have one last question, um, which is what is your ultimate goal as a seabird ecologist? But before I ask that, <laughs> it's a pretty big question. Are there any other little um, topics you wanted to, to cover that I, I, I've missed, perhaps? Um, pretty well covered all the questions you sent along and uh, the big topics. You know, the species split thing. I think that's, that's like some very modern science that people just aren't fully aware of. Uh, I think it's really cool to get that information out there. Like, yeah, there's, there's actually two different species right here. Um, so it actually... New Zealand was already leading the world in most penguin species. Now one more, just one on top of that to have two species of little penguins. Uh, there's also been a lot of news on fossil penguins over the last few months uh, being dug up in the South Island. Uh, the giant penguins, as well as the Richdale and Warham penguins that were found out on the Chathams, both of those just found by a PhD student. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of penguin news going around right now. Uh, that giant one certainly made the news as well as the giant Yeah, the giant uh, penguin. How big yeah, is uh, the giant penguin? So the record for the biggest ever was 2 meters, 115 kilos, or roughly Sam Whitelock. Uh, so <laughs> a rather, that is a rather big penguin. Um, but the newer big one, uh, I don't believe it was a new species. It was just a new fossil of a species we're aware of. It was 5 foot 4, which is like 1.3 centimeters or 1.3 meters mm -hmm. um so you know like a smaller human i guess mm -hmm. uh, um like aaron yeah. smith uh, <laughs> a bit Barrett. smaller than <laughs> a bit smaller yeah um yeah not quite the uh the massive two meter penguin but yeah plenty of penguin news uh the richdale and warm penguins are a good bit smaller um that's still exciting the uh i'm blanking on which one it was but one of them is a subspecies of yellow-eyed penguin the hoiho um so it's interesting to see like 
all these different penguins lived right here in this country all this time ago, you know, most of them millions of years ago, uh, as well as the more recent ones like the yellow eye subspecies going extinct more recently. Uh, yeah, plenty of penguin news going around, especially it's been exciting with the penguin conference over the last week, getting to hear about all the new different techniques like uh, the Tawaki project is world leading and their penguin research techniques now putting cameras on penguins and they post this to Instagram. You can watch as the penguins go swimming around in the ocean and feeding on food and living their lives. Uh, and they're using that to verify against GPS tracking and accelerometer, accelerometer models and all that sort of information. And you're just watching it. You're watching as the penguin goes. How do you watch life. it? It's on a the, video. It's like web. a GoPro. Like, yeah, on, so it's just on their website. Uh, they post them to YouTube, and uh, I believe they post little clips of them to Instagram as well. That's the Tawaki project, the Fjordland Crested Penguin project. Okay, so that's the fairly new um, conservation technique to kind of um, document what they do. Yeah, um, we've always been interested in what sort of things you can attach to them without ruining their lives, essentially. Like, first things first, obviously. Make sure it's not negatively impacting them. We don't want to hurt them by putting something on them. Uh, so these new techniques with smaller cameras and more streamlined mounts to put the cameras on them, those sorts of things, we're able to get more information off these birds without severely impacting their lives. Uh, like uh, my research group, we're using GPS trackers, just little micro loggers that you attach to their back and you see where they went. But the next step is putting a camera on them to see what they did when they were there. Mm -hmm. We currently use uh, statistical modeling to say, okay, they were moving at this speed and they turned at this angle, so we think they were feeding. But if you have a camera on them, you're like, you oh, confirm. they just ate that. <laughs> but with the camera, how? What's the? What happens when the battery runs out? Uh, hopefully, you have a good battery. Um, but particularly, so it's pretty for much just like a one-off, because you know you may not see that penguin again to replace that's the battery. Why you <laughs> That's why you would do it with a penguin that you know where they're coming back. Um, right, most penguins okay. are pretty loyal to their burrow. Uh, Kodora pretty much come ashore at the same point and then walk up the same trail to get to the same burrow uh, each time they come ashore. And that's every few days. Tawaki, they do much longer foraging trips, but still they're going to be coming back to the same spot. Uh, so we've always been doing GPS tracking this way, where you put the GPS tracker on them. They go and do their thing. They, they go out to work and then they come back and you find out where they were. Mm -hmm. um, cameras is just the next step mm -hmm. uh, it's saying what they were doing while they were there uh, it's no more intrusive than the GPS trackers were which is to say not intrusive some of the first attempts done in like the 40s were pretty obtrusive that's why we don't do that anymore but with really small GPS trackers that only weigh 2 grams uh, it's not even bothering the bird and we're still getting so much information out of it um, learning about how far the Tawaki travel uh, calling them the marathon penguins that go all the way down to the subantarctics and back wow. and uh, um, getting to see what they were doing all that time is just utterly fascinating yeah i'm, I'm very intrigued with um you know, having this video footage and how you can share that with the world on social media in a somewhat like entertaining way so it's it's educational it's good for science but it can also be uh, used for entertainment, which is obviously good for connecting with non-scientists perhaps out there mm. in the world. Yeah, I'm really fascinated with that, how, um, you know, how we can do research, how we can educate in a way that's appealing 
in the current era that we're in, you know, people that where we consume all our all our attention's on our phones, it's on social media, we're watching videos, we're you know looking at photos, and it'd be cool just to scroll through your newsfeed and and see this video of this penguin, which is actually cool to see, but it's actually there for scientific purposes. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great era in that way that we can spread this sort of information so widely. It's not something that's locked away in scientific journals. It's something that the second that tracker gets back, uh, Thomas Martin's uh, posted it to the Instagram for Tawaki Project. Mm -hmm. We get to see where that penguin went. Uh, It's really a new era where, I mean, even today uh, we had... Nothing should be locked away. No, no, it's information. Like, that's what we have it for. Science is useless if it's not spread. Um, and like, even today we were doing our burrow checks and as I was seeing penguin chicks, I can just share it like, Oh, Hey, this nest box someone built now has a chick in it. Like, that's so cool that we can see, you know, and they're numbered. So we even can say, you know, nest box 19 has penguin chicks in it. Whoever built nest box 19, you might've just saved a little penguin family. Uh, and those sorts of things, having the videos, uh, being able to spread it via social media is so cool. And Tawaki Project is leading the way on that. They have such excellent scientific outreach, uh, and they're leading the way with those uh, those camera projects, mm-hmm. um, as well as the GPS trackers, sharing those maps around, and they're using um, those maps that are updated as the penguins are thousands of kilometers away to have like competitions. Mm-hmm. Who do you think is going to be the next penguin to come back to the colony? Uh, those well, sorts of things. Yeah, you're kind of gamifying this in some way. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. which is also like a is clever. Yeah, getting people involved, getting them invested. Uh, I mean, who knows about Tawaki? No one's ever seen one. But if you you know open up Instagram and you've got a Tawaki going swimming around foraging, and you know its name, and you know where it bred last season, where it went over summer, uh, it really gives you this personal connection to an animal that you might never see in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, virtually no one gets to see. They're extremely rare and extremely isolated. Uh, so being able to spread this information to the, the public, it's mm-hmm. not locked away in a scientific, scientific journal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And that's really important. All this information should be, you know, I guess I'm not a scientist or a researcher, but I imagine that people like yourself, you do this research, you put in this work so that you can then share that with everyone else. So if there is a disconnect between your research and the general public, then, um, you know, that's not what you want. You want those two things to, to align. Yeah. Mm. So how do we like, go about doing that is, is the question. Yeah. The old maxim in uh, uh, science is, if you didn't publish, did you even do the study? <laughs> I would now extend it in the modern era to, if you didn't do outreach, did you even do the study? If anyone other than scientists doesn't know about it, then for this line of work, I mean, obviously there are things that only the scientists need to know about it, uh, like really detailed technical studies. But things like, you know, where do Tawaki eat? Something like that is simple. It's the natural history of this country. It's you know, it's the heritage of this country and people should know about it. It's fascinating. Everyone loves their penguins and it's information that people should be able to find out about and get to learn about these animals all around them. I'd go to an ex- extreme, even more extreme version of that and say, if you're a scientist or a researcher and you don't have a social media <laughs> account, does it even 
you know. Yeah. Like yeah, that's the ex- extreme version, but that's that's how I look at it. Like social media is where people is everyone's attention is on on social media, and if you're trying to spread a a message or influence people to do something else or educate someone, um, you need to preach where the attention is, and and the attention is on Instagram. And it's crazy to think about that. Like, I, don't get me wrong. And I'm sure people, a lot of uh, researchers will kind of listen to that and be like, this guy has no, no idea what he's talking about. But like in a in a crazy, weird way, that is, it's kind of true in a lot yeah. of ways. If your objective is to educate and spread awareness, um, yep. there's no better way to, there's no better place to do that than on um, social media. Or podcasts, wherever <laughs> the attention is, and the attention on podcasts is going in this trajectory. Um, so, putting your voice in those spaces is is important. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Mm. Okay, so to my final, the grand finale question is kind of a big mm-hmm. one. So, you're a would you call yourself a seabird ecologist? Is is kind of what title would you give yourself? Yeah, seabird ecologist. Uh, I, until very recently, didn't work with seabirds, but it is my current position. I would broadly call myself just an ecologist that is currently and probably in the future working with seabirds. <laughs> uh, like trying to give a label to a scientist is, uh, it just fades right off. Mm-hmm. You don't want labels like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think seabird ecologist is a fair assessment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So, as a seabird, a current seabird ecologist, <laughs> do you have an ultimate goal? Do you have a vision? Uh, very Work broadly. Yeah. Very broadly, I just love to aid in the conservation of wildlife and recovery of ecosystems. Um, I would love for people to be able to experience what it's like on a predator-free island at night. I would love that to be the mainland at night. I would love that to, to be people get to see petrels flying over their heads and penguins waddling past their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to recover the ecosystem to that extent. I know it's an extremely long-term goal. Uh, it's a long way going to get, you know, penguins waddling down the street, but it's something that I would like to push us towards. Uh, as far as what I'm specifically looking for right now, recover the Horaki Gulf. We can move on from that. Get these islands to be good conditions for the penguins. Understand what conditions we want them to have, where we should be encouraging them to go. And that is the purpose of the current study. We aren't just studying inner gulf to outer gulf close to Auckland to far away from Auckland so we can say Auckland bad that's not the point of it it's to say if we're trying to grow these penguin populations where should we place our focus are we dooming them by putting them close to the city whenever we do a translocation or we set up nest boxes should we even be trying to put them in those close locations or should we place greater focus further away so I would like to contribute to that establish as many colonies across the Horaki Gulf as we can and get those colonies to be thriving. Uh, and then we can move forward. And one day, I hope that people can experience what these predator-free islands are like uh, just in the city, at their homes, seeing seabirds all around them. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.